Hello and welcome to the High Potential Startups interview series. I'm your host, Nick Taylor, and this week I've had the opportunity to speak with Nikaya Dool, who has a phenomenally interesting journey. Um, he's our episode four guest, um, scientist, entrepreneur, currently running a, a diagnostic company, developing a solution for a problem that 900 people every hour in the UK call their GP about. Um, the business that he's co-founded works at the interface of engineering, microbiology and chemistry. And the company is really at its, at its early stages, but the technology is well developed and they're going through some real leaps that I'm excited to talk to Nikaya about. Um, but firstly, a note on our sponsor for the podcast, Octopus Ventures, one of Europe's largest and most active VCs with over a billion under management and a portfolio of more than 100 companies. Their investment team specializes in five areas, health, fintech, deep tech, consumer, and business-to-business -business software. And the health team in particular is looking to back entrepreneurs who are transforming the health industry, from digital therapeutics through to biotech at seed, series A and B. To date, Octopus Ventures has backed some of the most disruptive startups in health, including LV, Big Health, Overture, Ori Biotech, and Quick Genius making them the perfect partners for this podcast as we talk to CEOs at the cutting edge of the life science space, discussing their careers, highs and lows, as well as taking a much closer look at the future plans for the businesses they are leading. I look forward to your thoughts on the podcast and welcome your feedback. Hi, Nikaya. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast series. It's great to have you here. Um, and I'm looking forward to the catching up. It's been a while since we last spoke. Um, and I know the business is moving forward, but it'd be great to hear the journey and talk, talk through it. Um, but for anyone that's listening to the podcast, why don't we start with introductions? It'd be great to hear, hear yours. I've sort of touched on it, but do it justice. Um, tell us about yourself and, and who you're working for. All right. Wonderful. Thanks, Nick, for the opportunity. Um, it's good to, good to see you again. Uh, so... My name is Nikardo. I'm one of the founders of Floretic. We're a Bristol-based medtech startup developing tools for effective antibiotic stewardship. And what I mean by that is quite simply, we're making rapid diagnostics that ensure that we only use antibiotics when we need to. And when we do use them, we're using the correct ones. So we've been around for the last four years and have been developing our very first product, which is a UTI diagnostic test. Um, which returns confirmation of the causative agent and the number of bacteria present within just 15 minutes, which is 200 times faster than the lab is able to do it today. So um, we're just getting ready. Uh, within the next 12 months, we're hoping to launch this product. And so it'll all go on, on Floretic side at this point. And you're touching on two topics that have just received massive amounts of publicity in the last, I think the last five, five years in particular, you think about diagnostic tools for one, and I'm talking from a, from a public eye, diagnostics is, I think if you ask someone in the general public what diagnostics are, they're far more aware than they ever were um, over the last two years. And of course, um, AMR, which is a topic that gets discussed a lot, gets put, has been put in the press quite a lot. And I think it's, yeah. a, it's a particularly interesting one, because when you look at clinical therapeutics, it's tough to fundraise for the money isn't necessarily behind it and backing it um but is particularly pertinent to human beings that are quickly running out of antibiotic choices um and yeah additional challenges off the back of it 
Yep, that's 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 absolutely right. I mean, um, the there's several publications around that have quoted the impact of AMR, and even today we could start seeing that. In particular, I could talk about urinary tract infections, where this mismatch between the infection and diagnosis of the infection leads to people getting worse before they're getting better. And I'm speaking specifically for the over 65s. And we're in a position where if we don't invest in better antibiotic stewardship and um, better practices, uh, we can end up in a situation where multi-drug resistant bacteria are killing more people than cancer on a yearly basis. And that's a crazy thing to think about given how widespread cancers at this point. So our part to play in it really is one of a bigger solution because, you know, antibiotics um, are really important to modern medicine. Um, you'd be amazed at how many places we actually use them and how important they are to even procedures that you'd think are unrelated. And so our, our tools are really there to ensure that we are able to allow the, gen the next generation to benefit from the antibiotic assets that have been developed to date and the ones that we will be developing. What do you think, um, when you're looking with a, with a long lens then on the, um, maybe this is a, it's a big question to start with, but scale, scale of impact of the organization that you're building. Um, because I, when I've looked at certain pieces that you've shared with me in terms of data, if I look at um, the experiences and comments that I've had from people that I know that work in the care, care homes um, and the reality of the starting point for your business, there's definitely huge impact in the immediate. What's the what's the scale of impact if businesses like yours don't start having an impact within this field? And where do you think your business can head in breadth of what you cover? Yeah, I can speak to urinary tract infections and because it's a, an important area that we're addressing as our first market. And they're incredibly common. 150 million people have UTIs every single year. And data in the in the UK shows that every hour, 900 people present to their GPs with UTIs. And although the, um, the elderly make up, the over 65s make up a smaller proportion of the UTIs, they actually account for the lion's share because they're the ones who are likely to end up in hospitals and experiencing um, suboptimal treatment of their UTIs. And we can pin this down more or less to how we make that decision on whether or not to treat and what do we treat with. And so companies like myself who are really helping inform and support clinicians' strategy in dealing with bacterial infections are incredibly important to, in the short term, their therapy and their, um, their rate of recovery, but also in the longer term in terms of the effectiveness of treatment options over time. So I, I think it's massively important. This is just one type of infection. Of course, if you go to the World Health Organization, there's a plethora of other bacterial infections that are of growing concern um, to the global populace. Of course, it's, it's not quite in the, front, in the forefront as COVID was because COVID spread really quickly. This is more of an undercurrent, which is bubbling at the moment. Um, the problem is once we've gone past that tipping point, uh, it, it's really difficult to recover. Okay. Um, just to go back to that number, because it's extraordinary, 900 people, is it a day? Every hour. Every hour. It averages out to 900 people every single hour across the UK. Wow, okay. Um, 
and you talk, you know, knock on effect to things like GPs availability, number of doctors you need in surgeries, the just even down down to the base cost of what it takes to 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 have a patient come in and go through that process. That's just staggering. It is. And, you know, they can be quite easy to treat. That's the thing. You know, it's fairly straightforward to treat in terms of a course of antibiotics. But getting that decision right in the first visit makes the difference between a few days of antibiotics at your home or possibly weeks of antibiotics and, well, weeks of treatment in a hospital setting. And that's what we're trying to really impact here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so potentially first first point of call within that space, long-term where do you see the business heading? Is it is it looking at other other different types of areas to diagnose? Will it stay in the bacterial space? What's the what's the thought for the company growth? It's plenty of work to be done within the bacterial space, and we expect to to expand within there initially. So other forms of infection, sexual health, respiratory infections, but beyond that, we do see the ethos of getting earlier indication and earlier diagnosis of disease as core to our vision as well. So there are other applications in oncology, for example, which we can address and we plan to address in the longer term. Okay, great. Okay, good. Um, so these are big ambitions. Um, yes. From the, so start foundation of the business, University of Bristol in terms of science and technology that you started to develop. That's, that's um, correct. Are you guys still based there? Whereabouts is, whereabouts is home the company currently? Okay, so we're currently based at the Science Creates Incubator in Bristol. So it's well affiliated with University of Bristol. Quite a few spin-outs um, were co-located in that facility. Um, Bristol is home. Uh, we're likely to expand within Bristol as well. Okay, so you are from Bristol, or are you did you move to Bristol for university and just it's now become home? What's that? Uh... Uh, yes, uh, so I'm originally from Saint Lucia. So. I moved quite quite a few thousand miles to, to come to University of Bristol to do my undergrad, also did my PhD there, and a postdoc and fellowship. So yeah. Bristol has kind of grabbed me and <laughs> I'm, right. I'm quite comfortable staying there. Okay, cool. When you go back to your early days then, so moved to Bristol, PhD, yeah. did you at any point see yourself being in this position? Is, was being That's a good yeah, you, is the natural entrepreneur sort of always sat at the back of your mind or is this something that's come through as you've, as you've developed? Well, the truth is in St. Lucia, I came from a family where everybody owned their own business. Yeah. So I knew at some point I would do it. Um, it's just I, I hadn't realised I'd be able to do it at this scale and yeah. in the UK as well. Bearing in mind, St. Lucia is a very tiny country. So global ambitions, um, you know, Similar, it's similar only something, or are they widely different? Or how's the widely different? So I've got um we've got a clinic, so diabetes focused clinics. So two of my brothers are um, medical doctors. We've got a development company, so contractors, so doing everything from road networks to cinemas to amphitheaters, that sort of thing. And then there's retail as well. Okay. Um, so it's just like a... <laughs> yeah. It's a real range of different expertise. And, you know, and I think even across the cousins and everything, like my my family are very much an entrepreneurial family. So, yeah, you know, I I had that ingrained in me. I just knew I had to get the right skills to to push the right idea. Okay. Um, and I thank God for the opportunities that have come along. I mean, being in the UK is really a good place to to grow ideas. And I think the last four years has been a really good a good time 
the scientists to to be bold with their expertise and to really push new technology new solutions out to the world that people just never thought were possible yeah did you um how are the university in helping you set the business up was it was that relatively smooth sailing i i, I, think, so, a lot of I think we i think we're probably part of the fortunate few who've had really smooth sailing we have a, a really great relationship with university of bristol they've been quite supportive of us um and we work quite well with them and so the foundations for the business you said at home home in in bristol and that's a long-term great scientific place to recruit for good talent to, to work within um talk me through the what's what's what have you found the biggest challenge for yourself building a team and taking a piece of technology out of the university what's been the biggest challenge for you stepping from academic to industry well um I would say there are two things that firstly on um, getting the culture right in terms of that transition from academic thinking to, you know, sort of metrics and efficiency driven business. So, um, but of course, ensuring that it's an enjoyable workplace. So there are quite a few factors to keep balancing. And I wouldn't say that we've gotten it right. We haven't gotten it perfect. But what we've done is learn from our team as we grow and ensure that we're reinforcing um, good attributes of the business and correcting where we've gotten it wrong. Um, recruitment, um, Bristol is a great place, there are lots of talented people around, um, but also we, for a long time, people have moved out of Bristol for scientific careers. And so we find ourselves in a position where we need to attract from outside Bristol to, to come in. But the great thing about the city is it is a great place to live. And so people are a lot more open-minded about you know building um, a career in the city. There's also the elements of, you know, getting the right senior skills as well. Um, it's quite challenging at this time. Lots of great ideas out there. And so you really have to, from day one, you're, you're selling to more than just investors. You're also selling to your team in terms of the vision and ensuring that um, people resonate with it and are attracted to it as well. So uh, it's, it's always going to be around recruitment, I'd say. Um, course fundraising goes hand in hand with that and also in terms of ensuring that we maintain a, a strong stable culture to build on okay and what's the you mentioned the vision what's the what is the vision for the business so effectively we're out to ensure that each person can walk into their gp one day and ensure that they get the optimal antibiotic treatment that's what we're about that's what we've been pushing from day one and we're getting closer and closer to delivering it um, we do have global ambitions as a business, so we do see this being a global product and a family of products that we're building on to support um, countries around the world and healthcare systems around the world. Okay, um, so UK potentially is the, the first place to get started, and there's, there's definitely benefits of using the UK system and the NHS to, to work within in terms of framework. Um, and of course, there's been lots of good news recently about the, their investments in new technology um, yes. and seem to drive a lot of this innovation, both in terms of early stage investment, but also making the NHS more proactive in adopting new technology and bringing it into, into the space. But um, that wider lens, does it, would it be US after that? Is it, is there, have your eyes started veering off to other countries yet, or is it still very much first product, get this to market, let's 
start uh, we we have already started looking externally in fact earlier this year we did recruit um a non-exec from the us um, which kind of gives an idea of where we're planning to go beyond the uk um but as i mentioned globally so us eu um, and asia with time okay. but of course as you said measured steps the UK is a very great place to launch. As you said, there are quite a few incentives around for adoption of new technology. And the NHS is probably at its most receptive right now to, ne to new technologies. So it's a pretty good time to be thinking about launching products to support either um, treatment or improvement of diagnosis. Mm. Okay. okay. Um, I had the, you know, one, of the, one of the challenges often people talk to me about with, at least with the European market, is thoughts on the IVDR regulations that have, I think, made life um, more challenging for, for early stage businesses, early stage businesses and companies looking like yours, where you need to build that data profile. Um, is that something you're, you're giving much thought to at the moment? Is that Has that impacted your decision making at all? So we've definitely built our strategy around that. Um, IVDR was something on our radar for a long time now, since 2018, I would say. Um, and we've been pretty much gearing our regulatory strategy around it. Um, whilst, yes, there's a bit more effort required, um, but I think startups also have a slight advantage in that we haven't built a culture around the IVDD yet in terms of level of detail of, of documentation and risk approaches. We, we're able to start afresh, if you, if you mm -hmm. get what I mean, within the IVDR environment and build towards that. Where it does create a problem, of course, is everybody's making that transition, which means that number of notified bodies versus number of companies looking for their time is severely imbalanced. But we do have plans to, um, to work efficiently around that in terms of getting on the queue, but also focusing on markets where we can launch um, prior to getting the IBDR, um, well, the notified body in. Okay, okay, great. Um... So you mentioned the vision of the company and, and at that point you were talking about establishing this core fundamental culture um, within the business. Um, now I often talk to people about culture and I, I, I'm a big believer that the right culture in a company can often overcome the greatest of challenges. Um, previous guests on this podcast have talked about optimism being one of those core pieces that if you proactively or if you positively look at a challenge constantly, you will always find a way to overcome it. As long as you've got the right the right mindset of people within the business and that culture, you can develop skill sets to overcome problems in front of you, or you can bring in the right skill set if you need to. Um, what's the what's the culture you want to build when people do when employees within the business describe the company? What would you hope they they say to someone? So there are two things that are sort of key. Um, well, I'd probably say three. Firstly, it's about delivering value. And what I mean by that really is making sure that we're putting out, giving our best every single time. And what we do deliver is fit for purpose. So that value thinking when it comes to employees, when it comes to investors, when it comes to the people who use our technology is, is very core to, to us in terms of doing, doing the right thing. Um, open communication is another one that I do. Um, it's something that we've placed efforts around, extra efforts around, especially since people have had to work remotely this year and, and much of and most of last year as well, and collaboration. So encouraging these conversations across different teams, um, because I think that's where the real innovation lies. It's why we built an interdisciplinary team this 
plethora of ideas. Sometimes, you know, you, you will get conflicts in the conflict in the middle middle of it, but you know, the open communication is there to help support us to really collaborate on a, on the deepest levels. Okay. And um open communication for you, what does that mean for you and how the business interacts then? What does that really how does that really so, work? It, it means for us, it's really ensuring that people feel free to be able to speak up, no matter who they are in the business, that ability to speak up. We may not necessarily agree, but the, certain, the one thing that we want to ensure is that if there's something to be said, that everyone feels that they have a voice and are able to, to share their opinions or share their ideas, share their thoughts. And there's, there are actual structures we have in place to encourage that, whether it be, you know, full team meetings where people are discussing their work or quarterly team days where we, we take a, some time away from the workplace and really start to connect on a personal level. Okay. Okay. So the, there's, um, I think there's so much power in, and I, taking from what you said, for me, I call that back to people feeling empowered, that yeah. ability to speak your mind and um, and having the confidence within an environment to do so it's actually it's really hard to nurture that kind of environment because um with open communications comes both and this is perhaps some of the negatives that sit around it or the connotations that sit around it and we internally within our business practice radical candor is um that balance between being making a point and trying to help someone or are you just being an arsehole um on the flip side right that's that's the 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 balancing act you've got to find with open communication is why are you yes. why are you saying certain things are you speaking because you care and you want to see someone else improve and we deliver it a lot internally in terms of feedback we try and do it with our clients as well that we we're always as blunt as we can be because we want people to hear the, the honest truth and the facts of what we're trying to say rather than just um something soft and delicate and you know we deliver feedback all the time to candidates that are unsuccessful and sometimes that's a and uh, not so, you know, I, ha I have nicer conversations in my week, but those are often the ones where people get the most value um, and they go on to get their next job because someone's cared enough to be quite blunt um, and make, make a point. And it's tricky to find that balancing act between... It is. Yeah, positive environment while still being... Yeah. ...critical on ideas, which is what you need to do for, for good science. That's, that's right. And um, one of the things we've found and we've been investing in um, is just understanding how people communicate. And it, it may sound like a, a bit of a moot point, but actually there's a lot of intricacy to how people communicate and, you know, how they interpret your communication as well. So we've, we've actually spent time learning that within the team and understanding each other and understanding what um, what are the do's and don'ts of trying to get information across because um, as well intentioned as you might be the packaging of that information if you don't take it into consideration um, may render you know it may mean that the person never gets the point that you're making and so that as you said that balancing act between open communication and making sure that the communication itself is effective um, so it, it doesn't mean that you you're say it in the most harshest of terms or in the most sugar-coated way but just making sure that we're cognizant of the fact that each person is slightly different and people react differently to, to um information as it's being depending on the way it's presented yeah and so um and i think for our so our business is, is a little bit uncommon in the fact that 
and you, t- you touched on it actually with your business. So you've got this plethora of different talents and different skill sets. And with these different skill sets, likely very different types of communicators, whereas our executive search business is probably more atypically your red driver type personality. Um, right. There's a degree of, I think, naturally um, outgoing individuals or extroverts as, a, as an atypical executive search consultant. That's probably how you label them. So we, um, our business is 80% people like that, 20% people that are doing other jobs like finance, um, et cetera. And therefore you get, while business is quite lopsided, and we can, we can definitely fall into the trap of being a lot of reds that are pushing in one direction or loads of different yeah. directions and not together. Um, but we've used, we use psychometric tools. We actually recently started with a company called Alba Labs that we've integrated into our business that's been, I think, very helpful at opening people's eyes to uh, some of the ways that they may be presenting themselves to others. Um, yeah. But also this realization that you've got different personalities and you need to adapt to get the most out of the other person. I think that yeah. was um, almost from a selfish perspective. If you want to get someone, out, you know, if you want to manage upwards or manage down, you need to adapt what you're doing to get the right right pieces from someone else. Are you using particular tools? You mentioned there the sort of training programs. How have you gone about? Yeah, so we we work with a company called um, See Me um, Profiling. Profiling. So they're um, the color wheel, if you're familiar with it, the red, yellow, green, blue. And we've been doing that for a little while now, and it's been really helpful just in understanding, as you said, how how other people tend to want to process information. So we've got quite a few blues, as you'd expect. So very analytical people within the team, as you'd expect for a scientific R&D company. We've also got yellows and greens and and the reds as, as well. So it's just understanding that, you know, people's disposition when it comes to communication you know, some people, may, you know, eye contact might be a big thing for someone or, you know, in some other, somebody else's case, you know, they would like to see the, the facts laid out in order to understand it. You know, it's, it's all those small details that really build team chemistry. And the fact that we're aware of it, it gives us a chance to actually work together more effectively. And it's something that I think, you know, it's well worth doing while you're a small team and growing with it. Yeah. And then, uh, I- it's always um the longer you wait the longer you take to do it the harder it is to implement and the harder it is for some for new adopters to come into the business whereas i imagine new person starts now and actually it's far easier to get get with that program and understand each other and start to work more collaboratively far quicker um yeah you mentioned you you do sort of quarterly day scientific sessions is that or no, it's completely non, non-scientific. We work really hard um, and it's an opportunity to play hard as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I say that in jest, but it's actually a chance to um, decompress because we, we do push to very tight timelines and it gives us a chance to pause, reflect on what we've achieved in the previous quarter, but also to spend and invest some time in the team chemistry and team building. Um, you know, Perhaps as we grow, that may not be so sustainable to keep it quarterly, but it's certainly something that will will continue with the company because we've seen the benefit mm. of investing time in, you know, in growing the, the team bonds and understanding how each other works. Um, because I could even now we still use the colors to refer to each other, you know. So it's it's quite useful. Did uh, so? Do these meetings that you have are they in, are they in person? Then when you do these quarterly sessions, are they together? 
Yeah, absolutely. They, they are in person. Um, so the, the structure of the day really is that we spend the morning reflecting on quarterly performance, um, you know, giving like team-wide updates on, you know, business strategy or anything that's probably not really covered, you know, throughout the week. It, you know, you might be in a different part of the business where you don't get to hear, you know, what's happening in, on the commercial front. So it's a chance for everybody to engage with the journey of the company. Um, but then, you know, thereafter, we spend a bit of time in a workshop um, in, on communication or dealing with stress um, or dealing with, you know, tough, tough conversations and the afternoon just hanging loose a little bit, just a, a bit of social time to bond as a team. So um, that's more or less the structure and it's, it's worked quite well. I mean, it's, it's one day uh, and it has benefits for months to come. And I think when you, so we, similar, and this is maybe off the back of things like lockdown and, and COVID related challenges and the way that we've shifted to heavily being home-based working is you need to, you no longer have those water cooler chats or those brief conversations. Zoom is not the way to have a, to really get to know someone. They get, it can get, take you so far, but actually building those proper bridges within a business and to your point early on, you know, people feeling engaged like they're delivering value that they're they're in an environment where they're actually having an impact and going off and tying themselves to this vision you've, you've got to have that people time you've got to have real face-to-face -face communication and yeah. yeah i completely agree it makes the world a difference we run similar actually every quarter um we meet up in some form or, an, or another and it is the first half of the morning is typically work-based and the second half is let's avoid talking about work, work as much as possible yeah about the, the people that we're with and we're spending time with because it's so easy with video calls with the systems that we run to forget those things and we found it particularly hard to you know you help you help understand someone's someone's cues so when they are having days that aren't right when they're mentally not in the right place coming into work so much harder to pick up when someone's home-based unless they're a natural talker yeah. for many people that's not the case yeah I think it's those moments that really help in the stressful times. Taking that time to build those team bonds is what will allow the company to, to weather storms because without that team chemistry, it, it just falls apart when the pressure comes. And so, you know, for us, we're being proactive in ensuring that we invest time because, you know, underlying, below the skills that we have or besides the skills that we have, there are individuals. You know, these are people with ideas with their own personalities and if we connect on that level we can certainly be more effective when it comes to working together yeah um so you've added you mentioned um you mentioned the non-exec directors that you brought into the business what's the roll roll back to the start of this year what was the team then and what's the team today how how has 2021 been for you in terms of that dynamic and the change that's come with it yeah yeah so we've added i would say at this point let me just confirm the math in my head we've added six people since the start of the year yeah. um that's a large number considering we were about yeah 10 people before yeah. including the part-timers yeah so it's it's quite a significant increase in in the team um which i'm really pleased about and that was our goal for this year really it's to to nurture talent, but then also to bring in new expertise to help us deliver on the vision. Um, we also plan to, to push out some data. So I'm really pleased that we 
recently resubmitted a paper um, for um, publication, which will finally get the Nanoplex assay out there for people to, to interact with. Um, but going back to the team, um, we, we sought to strengthen every layer of the business. Um, it's great that we achieved what we could have at this point, but moving forward, we saw the need for, for more help and more expertise. So we brought in the first role we brought in this year was our chief medical officer. And he was a very enthusiastic um, consultant urologist from the Cambridge area. Kazra, he's been he's been a, a real gem to the company, to be honest, um, in terms of understanding the clinical needs and the pathways ahead of us. We've also been looking for non-exec for quite a while now in terms of bringing in the right sector expertise. Um, we were quite fortunate to find someone who had worked within UTI space for a while with a rapid diagnostic and has gone through the FDA process before. Um, so we jumped on the opportunity to bring on board Dana um, in the middle of the year. And we also brought in three um, scientists, so a microbiologist, um, a senior development scientist who's helping with the regulated part of our product development, and a, a brilliant data scientist from um, UCL who's, who joined us um, in September. So it's been really good enriching, and I can see the benefits already in enriching the, the team um, with new new perspectives, new expertise to, to tackle both the commercial and the um, technical challenges that we're, we're going to be facing moving forward. So you, um, when you, yeah, I think you started to touch on it. So you've achieved the head headcount growth that you wanted to, you've brought in a yes. set of expertise, but it sounds like you had other ambitions for this year. And one of, one of which was that paper. What, what else were you hoping to achieve by the end of this year? What's, um, What's, what's happening over this quarter that sort of lines up with that? Uh, so over the next quarter, one of the things we, we wanted to do was make our data publicly available. It's okay. great to be pioneering a test that's 200 times faster than the lab, but as part of the scientific process, it really adds credibility and strength to our proposition to have our data peer reviewed. And so um, we did put through a peer reviewed publication to ACS um, in Q3. Uh, yeah, late Q2, we've dealt with the reviewer comments and fingers crossed that it gets accepted and published. Um, we've done conferences this year as well, scientific conferences in, in infectious disease, but it's all about getting the scientific community to really engage with um, our technology and the way that it works. Um, we're also looking to, to kick off other areas of development, so the future products. Um, that's that's going to be a very interesting one. The first stages are happening this quarter, and we'll have a lot more to say next year. Hopefully, you bring me back so I could tell you tell you more about it. Um, but also, we we on the commercial front, we did go out looking at early opportunities for commercialization. And in the summer, we turned down a license offer from a major diagnostics player, which was um, quite empowering, just to say the least. Yeah, gives some confidence. It does. It, it does say that we're, we're onto something and there is interest out there for it already, um, both from the clinical side, but also from the um, commercial partner side of things as well. Okay. Um, do you see this? Do you know, I imagine the company, as you start to pour your heart into it, right, as the business starts to grow and you, you get, I think, naturally more and more entwined with its success and its performance sort of ties to your probably emotional mood. I, I know I see it on my side. Um, do you think this is a business that you'll take, you'll want to take all the way through to launching the product and keeping it independent until that point and having that 
um, having that journey for yourselves, what do you see as the, the likely journey for the company over the next two, three years? Um, next two, three years are really exciting when it comes to getting the product into the hands of the people we've designed it for. That's just the most exciting part. And as long as I'm still the right person for the job, I will be here to do it. Um, God, God sparing life. So, you know, it's, it's definitely my ambition to keep bringing my enthusiasm and drive to the business. And over the next few years, as I mentioned, we'd be looking to get our first product into the hands um, of clinicians and to scale it up um, as much as possible. Okay. Um, you can literally see your face lights up at that thought of getting it into a patient's hands. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, uh, do you know, that, that short-term dream, so journey time, and for someone looking at your organisation and saying, right, well, look, I'm considering something new and things like assay development scientists are hard to come by. Diagnostics has become a space that's become harder and harder to recruit for. Um, what's the real benefit, do you think, of or... What sets you apart to other competitors within the space? What's Why would someone look at your business over others? Well, firstly, um, what I would say is that in terms of addressing diagnosed um, bacterial infections, the, the gold standard today for diagnosing um, an infection remains the culture. And it's great because it confirms the ID, it's accurate, and it's also... Um, able to quantify how much bacteria is present, which is, is actually critical for determining whether or not there's genuinely an infection. And so with respect to what we're delivering, we're the only test that's focused on matching what the culture gives while overcoming the only problem it's had, and that's the two-day time delay. Okay. okay. And what's the, when your product goes live, what do you think the, from a clinical perspective, what will be the time from results of Sample to result. It's 15 minutes. That's okay. that's what we've been working to. Um, that's what we've done on the bench. Okay. So this is literally go to your GP, test, sit outside the waiting room, go back into your GP, here's your result, here's your prescription. See you later. Yeah. It could be as simple as that. It okay. could also be at your pharmacy. It could be at a care home. It could also be an A&E if you're unfortunate to be there as well. Okay. So... And, and talk about those two days, because two days makes, a, I think with, um, people are becoming more and more aware that two days in any form of treatment for anything is sometimes the difference between life, life and death. I think in this case, it's probably more so the, just the extremes and damage it can do to your, to your health and long-term health, um, but also things like your short-term mental health. There's a host of elements off the back of having a UTI that probably people are really unaware of. Yeah, so certainly um, we, we were recently at the pharmacy show and came across a, a pharmacist who mentioned to me that I need to validate this, but he mentioned that actually right now, UTIs are the number one reason people phone up 111. And they're really commonplace, but also I, we have to give credit to our clinicians who work tremendously hard and together with the regulators, um, so nice. They have put in place measures to help support people in the absence of a, a diagnostic that could confirm the infection within the first visit. However, what we want to do is empower them with the information. They have the information they receive from the culture is holistic and it's useful. 
what we want to do is provide them with that same information, but just sooner so that they could be a lot more confident in the strategies that they're deploying. And from the patient side, that they could be more, they could achieve faster recovery times. And most critically for the elderly, that they don't have to get into the hospital if they don't need to, if you get what I mean. That it, it, the challenge is you get in there for one thing and they're particularly vulnerable to pick up an, a hospital acquired infection, which makes life even harder. And so being able to treat people closer to their homes and more effectively is what we're trying to package into a product, not to replace the GP, but to really support our clinicians with the information they need um, sooner and in the time frame that they need it. Okay. And so the, you mentioned that the, the culture, of course, which is, I think you alluded to earlier, that it's accurate to a high degree in terms yeah. of diagnosing. Um, are you looking at a similar accuracy level? Is there going to be much of a shift towards the... Yeah, so we, we have tested out and we're our, our tests are over 90% is our target on all species that we develop for. Um, we think that that's the bare minimum that any new new technology needs to deliver. The existing um, the existing point of care test used in, in UTIs is the dipstick. And when it comes to UTI, it's actually atrocious how accurate it is because it I don't think it was originally designed for that. Um, that's the thing. <laughs> and so it's... Um, its sensitivity is quite low. Some places reported as low as around 10%, others around 45%. So imagine that. We went better off with a flip of a coin. 10% sensitivity. Yes. So it's pretty good at telling you when there's not an infection, but when there is an infection, it's, it gets really, really hard. So um, that's that's what we're, we're up against. So it's very well ingrained. Um, but everybody kind of understands that it has its limitations. And this is what we're overcoming, being able to provide confirmation of what's causing it and how much of the bacteria is present. So when it comes to people where there is a case of they're, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of on the fence in terms of determining whether or not there's genuinely an infection there, knowing quantitatively how much bacteria is present, is going to give that assurance. Yeah. And knowing what it is, is going to help guide the choice of antibiotic as well. We do have plans to deliver a product which will do antibiotic susceptibility testing. So that will be part of the product family as well, which means it'll be able to tell which antibiotic is most likely to work at the point of prescribing. Brilliant. Okay, so a really nice evolution to the product portfolio. Um, yes. Okay. Um, and again, I think to your point, when you take it out of take it out of a GP surgery and you put it into care homes, well, how do you have how do you give people a tool that's really accessible, really easy to use and gives them the right yeah. advice and the right guidance to go forward? And um, I, and I've had this with other people actually on the podcast and other people that I work with consistently is that you're almost putting a lot of the power back into the hands of the consumer because or the, the user rather than um, the GP, the, the educated decision is being done and made in a very straightforward fashion. And um, I could see people particularly within Cahoms, not needing additional treatment, that fast rate and pace, the high level of results, and then also the right kind of antibiotic, because I'm to realize there's a there's a degree of trial and error. Is that right to say on with with treating UTIs? Yeah, so um, one of the things with susceptibility testing is you could almost think that the person is the susceptibility test, mm -hmm. um, because you we would have probably all heard, you know, try this, and if it if you don't see improvement, then come back. And to be honest, um, it's the best we could do. 
I'm not shooting it down. It's the best we could do at this point until the technology catches up. So in terms of improving outcomes, this is really useful. And as you said, in terms of putting power, I'm pretty sure the GPs would all appreciate the additional support and taking care of some of that UTI workload um, because there are lots of conditions to manage right now. And with the backlogs that the NHS is seeing, I'm, um, I'm very certain that you know, cl clinicians would be receptive to being able to shed some of that load and sort of triage patients more effectively. Okay. Um, I'm gonna pick your brain on something then slightly outside. So we've seen, and I think COVID has made us very aware of how far technology's come from mobile phones, yeah. laptops, Zoom, software, the, the whole host goes on in terms of how we're connected. Um, and you mentioned then the technology, medical technology, taking that leap forward and really catching up with, or, or going through that accelerated development process. Of course, 20 years ago, mobile phones didn't really exist, or they did, and you were carrying a briefcase with it, um, through to where we are today. Do you think off the back of COVID, off the back of the investment that's coming into the sector, we may very well see a similar acceleration in development and route that products come to market, the impact on, on medical health. Um, realize there's greater complexities like the regulatory processes that go behind it. But I, I've got a personal feeling that we are st at the starting point of a snowball effect towards rapid change and development in the space. Yes, yeah. So um, I, I I think that impact will be felt more by drug developers than diagnostics initially, but you're right. I, I do see it becoming an efficiency that's spread across um, across the sector. And how, how soon is, you know, yeah. it's anybody's guess really. I think when we think about particularly in the FDA in the US where there hasn't been necessarily a rigorous six month cadence to reviewing applications, it's, you know, it can be frustrating in terms of getting products through that chain. So we, we hope that, you know, the, the efficiencies and the progress seen through the COVID, the, the great efforts of COVID will translate to improvements in the systems across the world. In terms of the technology and the speed of development, um, to be honest, I, I think it's always been at pace. Um, the slowdown comes to that, that interface with regulatory okay. um, and, you know, transit two changes have happened um you know ivdr and the iso 13485 was also updated in 2021 mm -hmm. so these sort of transition points tend to have a slowing effect but you know perhaps in the next five five to ten years you might see it as everybody has adapted to this new way of working that it may mean that products get put through the system a lot more effectively and, and quicker okay um, that's interesting because I, I would have perhaps thought the to the degree the inverse in many scenarios that difference between therapeutics and device technology I, th I think in part because if you look at a lot of the therapeutic development pieces they are now dependent or inhibited by the lack of medical technology behind them Cellogene therapies is yeah. a, a really good example actually a lot of what's currently done manually needs to become automated uh, yeah and it needs, it needs to evolve. It needs to go through that quite significant overhaul in order yeah. to really accelerate therapeutic de development. And I think that, that travels down through diagnostics quite heavily. Um, yeah. And 
although probably slightly more simple in its science, the lateral flow test that came with the lack of, uh, of COVID testing um, and therefore investment in the space. And it's probably perhaps for this noble idea that scale of investment that's come because a governments have spent far more money on testing full stop. So there's a lot more yeah. possibility in businesses um, and B because investors have stood up and realized, I think particularly those out of sector where they would have been investing in anything from airlines to oil yeah. businesses that actually there's an opportunity here that's maybe been overlooked for a long time because of the highly technical space, because it's, um, it's challenging in its own right to get involved with and um, yeah. it becomes slightly more mainstream to how we operate. Um, yeah. But and maybe, I don't know, how, how have you seen that on the investor relationships that you've had, the, the conversations with people in the market? Is that, is There's that, certainly optimism within any sort of health tech related businesses. Um, I, you know, someone said to me that they think the next 10 years is going to be quite good for health, healthcare investments generally. Um, because they, they will be both managing COVID, but also the, the fallout of COVID, you know, in terms of where technology could really come in and, you know, breathe life or help um, mitigate some of the, the impact. We could already see some of it in mental health apps. So a lot of health tech businesses have, have sprung up to help support with mental health issues. But also, as you mentioned, in diagnostics as well, the, the widespread use and adoption of tests, you know, people are a lot more open and see the value in testing. And so um, it may just reinvigorate the space um, as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, I, as with, I guess, many of the early stage businesses, we're seeing new investors coming into the space as well, um, which is a good thing. So thank you for listening to the first half of this podcast. So Nikaya shared a good amount of detail about what they're up to at the moment as a business, what he's involved in, his pleasures, passions, the things that he's enjoyed so far. But Nikaya and I go into more depth on the business and their fundraising piece over the next 12 months. The pieces around their IP, the way the technology is developing, the potential impact to the market and some of the clinical outcomes for the technology. They're in the process of a fundraising journey. And if you're an investor in the space and interested to hear more, reach out to Nikaya or myself to hear the rest of the podcast and get insight into potentially joining that fundraising round.